Now, when the pastors send you an email asking you to read the scripture on Sunday mornings, nobody has an excuse, right? To remind you of Ezra. The main point of the book of Leviticus is God is holy, so his people must be holy. These two chapters are really a review, a summary of all the chapters that have gone before. The only difference is, there are two differences really, one difference is now all that's been instructed in terms of cleanness and uncleanness, in terms of the sacrifices, etc., it's all being applied to the priests. So look with me in chapter 21, verse 2. It says, or verse 1, excuse me, speak to the priest, the son of Aaron. Verse 10, the priest who is chief among his brothers, so that's the high priest. Verse 16 and 17, speak to Aaron, who was the high priest. Again in chapter 22, verse 2, speak to Aaron and to his sons. Um, and then again, finally, uh, in verse 17 of chapter 22, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel. So what's happening in these two chapters is that the teaching that's gone on in chapters 1 to 20 is being applied very specifically to the priests of Israel. God is holy, so his priests must be holy above all. Many of you are probably familiar with the quote of the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane. He's famed for a lot of things, and one of the things that's often quoted from McShane is this little line, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness, which can sound like hyperbole until you realize that the progress of God's people is often tied to the progress of God's priests and God's pastors. As goes the priesthood, so goes the peoplehood. Now, since this is summary of what's going on in chapters 1 to 20, we won't dive into all the details of these two chapters. We are rather trying to sort of notice what's added, what's unique, what's new in these two chapters. And what's new, I think, is very profound. I might put it this way. It's the main point for the sermon. To get nothing else, get this. God's people sanctify God because God sanctifies his people. God's people are called to sanctify God because God sanctifies his people. There's a kind of mutual sanctification that's going on in these two chapters. If you're taking notes, we might put our points in two simple points, just breaking apart the main point. Number one, we sanctify God. And number two, God sanctifies us. We sanctify God. God sanctifies us. Let's take that first point. We sanctify God. That, that idea that we, God's people, sanctify God might sound a little unusual. But, but really, it's an idea that runs through these two chapters and runs really through the entire Bible. Now, usually the, the Bible expresses the idea of, of, of God's people sanctifying him in different words. It, 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 it uses the words of um, treating him as holy. It, it uses the words of uh, honoring him or glorifying him. These are ways of talking about how we sanctify God amidst, amidst his people. God's name is another way of referring to God's character, to God's person. 
And the Bible sometimes talks about our sanctifying God's name, treating his name as holy. And perhaps this is taught most famously by Jesus himself. Remember when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? What's the first petition? Hallowed be your name. Your name be holy. We're sanctifying God's name. So this is one of the biggest responsibilities that, that God's people have here in Leviticus chapters 20 and 21. It's one of the biggest responsibilities that God's people have in the new covenant as well is to sanctify God's name. Now you remember where the priests are concerned in particular back in Leviticus chapter 10. The opening verses of Leviticus chapter 10, you remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two oldest sons, they offer a strange fire to God, an unacceptable offering to God, and God does what? God consumes them and kills them. And you remember what God says in Leviticus 10 verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, referring to the priests, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. That's God's agenda among his people. And among those who are near him, among his priests, and in the new covenant, we are all the priesthood of God. We are a royal priesthood. He will be sanctified. He will be glorified. Well, how do we do that? How do we sanctify God's name among us. Well, if you let, if you were listening to the excellent reading that Nick uh, gave us, you listened to the excellent reading um, throughout chapters 21 and 22, you, you might have noticed a, a repeated idea. It's almost like a chorus. If this were a song, this would be the hook. And that repeated idea is, is, is this. We'll see it first of all in chapter 21, verse 6. Look there with me. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. That's the opposite of sanctify. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the, the bread of their God. Chapter 21, verse 14. See the second half of verse 14 there? But he shall take as his wife, now he's talking about the priest's uh, marriage and family, he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. Chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. He may eat the bread of his God, but of the most holy and the holy things, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar. He's talking here about priests who have a blemish because he has a blemish that he may not, notice, profane my sanctuaries. Chapter 22, verse 2. Here now he's talking about the handling of the holy things, the offerings, the sacrifices. Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. Chapter 22, verse 9. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. Verses 15 and 16. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. And at the very end, chapter, verses 31 and 32. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my name, my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. So they were to sanctify his name 
basically by avoiding profaning his name. Now remember what we've seen in the earlier chapters, the kind of worldview that's in Leviticus, that all things exist in one of three states, that a thing may be common. That means it's, it's sort of basically clean or um, it's, it's put to its ordinary purpose. So this little podium is used for speaking. Anytime it's used for speaking, then it's being used for a common purpose, not necessarily a religious or a holy purpose, but a common purpose. But common things can either become unclean or they can become holy. They become unclean when we profane them, when we defile them, when we do something sinful with them. So if this, if this podium was being used to um, teach sinful ideas and to encourage people into sinful things, we would be defiling it and making it unclean. But common things and, and even unclean things can go the other direction too. They can be sanctified and made holy. That is, they can be taken from their common condition or their unclean condition, be cleansed, and then set apart, sanctified for God's use alone. Now, God's name should only be in one category, holy. God's person, God's things should only be in one category, holy. We should never profane God's name and make it common or unclean, right? This, this is why, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a practicing Jewish person, you don't even spell God's name. You put a little underscore there for the O. You don't use God's name in common conversation because that would be to profane God's name. God's name is holy. God's person is holy. It is set apart. It is clean. It is pure. It is meant to be kept that way. And God's people are meant to sanctify his name so that it's always that way. And so what we're seeing here in these repeated references through chapter 21 and 22 of, of saying, do not profane my name, do not profane my name, do not profane my name, do not profane my name. God is saying to his people, to his priests in particular, do not drag my name through the mud. Do not take my holy name, do not take my holy character, and do not put it to common or sinful uses. They are to sanctify his name. They are to treat it as holy because that's what God is. God is holy. That's always the calling of God's people. To exalt his name as holy. To lift up his name as pure and clean and right altogether. Well, how are they to do this? Well, God's main method for the sanctification of his name among his people can be put in one word, obedience. Obedience. They are to obey God's commands in every area of life because it's in that obedience that God's name is set apart as holy, is shown to be holy. And really, when you go through chapters 21 and 22, it's just taking different areas of the priest's life and sort of saying, here are my commands, and if you keep my commands, then in this area, you will not profane my name. So I'm going to give you four areas here, all of them beginning with the letter M. Number one, when it comes to your mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. You see that in chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. 
There God has given instructions that the priest, unless it's a close family member, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a son, or a daughter, uh, if someone dies and you're in your priestly duties, you cannot go uh, where that dead body is. You can't sort of go and conduct funeral rites because a dead body would make you ceremoniously unclean, right? Ceremonially unclean. And so the priest here, we're being told, is not to do that. They were to be holy because they offered, verse 6, God's sacrifices. Right? So in their mourning, in their grief, in their sorrow over loved ones, they were still to be holy and to make God's name holy. Number two, in their marriages. So not just in their mourning, but now the priest in their marriages and their families were to sanctify God's name, not profane it. See, verse 7 teaches that a, a priest could not marry a prostitute or a defiled woman or a divorced woman. Not only that, but if a priest's daughter had defiled herself in, in sexual immorality, verse 9, then notice she profaned her father and in this terrible judgment was to be burned with fire. The Bible never is casual about sexual immorality. It's a serious sin. Verse 14 now we're looking at the high priest. So not just all the regular priests in, in verses 7 and 9, but now looking even at the high priest in verse 14, um, the, the high priest, chief priest, could not marry a, a widow or a divorced woman, a defiled woman or a prostitute. He could only marry a virgin, verse 15, from his own people so that his family would be sanctified. So a priest's marriage and family were to be holy in order to make God's name holy. We, it doesn't take us much imagination to see the New Testament equivalent of that when you look at the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're in so many ways describing a, a holy pattern of life, both for the individual and for his family. Well, not only in mourning and marriage, but also ministry. Chapter 21, verses 10 to 12, verses 16 to 14 are all describing some aspect of the priest's actual ministry. So again, in, in verses 10 and 12, we're talking about the high priest, and it's talking about the high priest when the high priest is, is consecrated with the holy oil. When he has the holy oil on him, when he has the holy garments on him, under no circumstances is he to leave the tabernacle. Because that would be to take something holy from the place of holiness into the common. That would be to profane that thing. And so he is to remain, even when it's the death of his parents, verse 11, he is to remain in the tent, ministering to the Lord, holy before the Lord. And not only that, verses 16 to 24, that to be a high priest and to, and to sort of be able to bring the offerings into God's presence, again, that priest must be without blemish. He can't be unclean because of a bodily fluid can't be unclean because of touching dead animals or, or dead persons. Uh, he must be without any physical blemish, verses 18 to 20, without any uncleanness, verse 20. It's the only way that he can approach God and it be acceptable. And if he has a blemish, not only can he not go into God's presence, right, but he has to sort of observe the, the, the sort of rites for cleanliness. He has to wash, uh, bathe. He will be unclean until that evening. And then uh, that cleanness will be taken care of and he's able to serve again. He may eat the offerings because that's uh, his portion. Uh, 
can't serve before the Lord in a ministry if he's unclean. Again, easy parallels to draw to the pastorate, isn't it? Beloved, it's a, it's a terrible thing to see churches led by men who are practicing immorality, who leave their wives and their children, who are known to be immoral among others in the congregation, who are immoral in their financial dealings, it's a terrible thing. These things ought not be so. We profane the name of our God if we pretend to occupy the sacred desk and to handle the holy things of God and yet give ourselves to those things that trash his name. So, beloved, if you are ever uh, in this church or you ever find yourself moved to another church, and the lights start to go out. <laughs> if you are ever in this church or any other church, where I hope you can see the pastor. You ought to be able to observe their life. And if it's unholy, you have a duty to either see that man removed from the ministry or to remove yourself from the membership of that church. Do not endorse that with your presence. Either he should leave or you should leave because you do not want to profane the name of God, to drag it through the mud. So here he addresses mourning, he addresses marriage, he addresses ministry, and then he addresses what I'll call meals, because I had to have another M. Uh, chapter 22 really is taken up with that, that whole point, right? Verses 1 to 16, they focus on what's called the holy things of Israel. What's, what's the Bible talking about there? Well, it's talking about the various sacrifices that are offered to God in the worship of God. These are the holy things of the temple. Those things are to be pure and without blemish. Verses 17 to 30 focus on the purity, purity of the offerings. Verses 1 to 16 focuses on the purity of the offerer. Right. So both the offerer and the offering are meant to be pure if given to God, so that God's name is not blasphemed. It's by obeying God in these matters that the priests were to protect God's name and God's things from being sullied or dirtied. It's how they sanctify God's name. I mentioned Robert Murray McShane in the introduction. McShane, many of you will know this, uh, was a famous preacher in Scotland even though he died at age 29. But by 29, he already had a reputation for being a man of noticeable, joyful holiness. When he died, there was a, a letter that had been sent to him by um, a visitor to his church the week before. Uh, the letter was unopened on his desk. Uh, when, when he died, it was opened a week later. And these are the words that the visitor wrote to him. He says, um, I hope you will pardon a stranger for addressing to you a few lines. I heard you preach last Sabbath evening, and it pleased God to bless that sermon to my soul. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking that struck me. This is what he said. I saw in you a beauty in holiness that I never saw before. I saw in you a beauty 
in holiness that I never saw before. That's what God is trying to create with the priesthood here in chapters 21 and 22. That's what he's trying to create with his people uh, as a nation. It's what he's trying to create with his church, that there would be this distinctive and noticeable and beautiful, alluring holiness. Because we regard his name as holy. So I wonder what people see in us pastors and members of ARC. Do others see in us a beauty in holiness that they never saw before? I pray so. I pray that that would be our testimony. Imperfect, surely. But more and more, I I pray that we would glimpse in each other and others would glimpse in us something of the splendor and the wonder and the glory of holiness as we sanctify God's name in our presence and in our hearts. So this is our calling, to sanctify God's name in a way, to sanctify God in that way. But, but notice the second part of this, it's God who sanctifies us. Now that calling, Israel failed at that calling. They failed at it miserably. They failed at it repeatedly. When God's people who were known by God's name disobeyed God's word, then they profaned God's name. And for that reason, God judged Israel. So if you want to keep your finger in Leviticus and turn over to your right with me uh, to the book of Ezekiel. In some sense, Ezekiel is entirely concerned with this problem of Israel profaning God's name among the nations. And I'm just going to, we're going to jump into a few verses here. The first one is Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 39. Prophet Ezekiel speaking to Israel before they go into exile says this, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve every one of your idols, now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. Isn't that strong? God says, go ahead on. Run after your idols. Give them your gifts. Go ahead and do it. But you're not going to drag my name through the mud anymore. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 19 to 23. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 19 to 23. Slightly longer passage. He's making a very similar point. God says, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries, in accordance with their ways and deed, their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people and said, and said, in that people said to them, of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel, uh, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's like, every place I sent you into exile, you made my name look bad. Now I'm about to act. 
And I'm about to keep my promise with you, but not because of you, because of my name. My, my name will be treated as holy. My name will be glorified. And, and that's why I'm about to act. Because sometimes God's people think that because they're God's people, somehow God's favor to them is about them. That somehow God's favor and grace to them is because they're so special in some kind of way. God's like, no, actually, let me just clarify for you right now. You can do what you want to with your name, but my name is going to be exalted. My name is going to be glorified. I will deliver you, but not because of you, despite you, so that my name is seen as great. Ezekiel 39, verse 7. Ezekiel 39, verse 7. God says there, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profane anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. One more. Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, verses 6 to 8. Ezekiel hears in a vision, and he sees a man in his vision. Verse 6 says, Ezekiel 43, verse 6 says, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. Verse 7, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, Neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings and their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. This vision of God speaking of Israel is coming too close to him without being holy, only having a little wall, a little cubicle partition between them in their unholiness and God in his holiness. And God says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be like that. They will defile my name. Israel felt it just so badly that God had to prophesy a future day when a new generation would sanctify his name. You can write this down and look at it later if you like. Isaiah 29, verses 22 and 23. Prophet Isaiah says there, or writes there, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. God was prophesying a day and a time, a generation, when those who had once profaned his name by God's sovereign working would sanctify his name. He would sanctify them so that they would sanctify him. That's really, really necessary. We, we are no different from Israel. We, we would be susceptible to all of Israel's weaknesses and infirmities, we are people just like they were. So how in the world are we going to sanctify God's name and how in the world are we going to be sanctified? How are we going to be the holy people that, that brings beauty to God's holy name? 
Well, the answer that comes to most people's minds is, is again, obedience. And, and that, in some ways, stands to reason to the natural mind. If we sanctify God's name by obeying him, then surely we sanctify ourselves by that same obedience. After all, no one can be sanctified or holy by disobedience to God, right? Well, here's the problem with that line of thinking. It's insufficient. Obedience is necessary, but not sufficient for holiness. If obedience does not come from God's grace first, then that obedience will fail us. Or to use the way Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the law cannot produce the righteousness that it demands. It's weakened by the flesh. And that's why turning back to the law for sanctification is called falling away from grace in Galatians 5.4. Grace is the foundation to holiness, not works. Grace is the foundation of sanctification, not, not our obedience, even though we owe God our obedience. Well, then how are God's people sanctified then? How do we achieve and maintain this holiness? Well, here's the answer I would give you from Leviticus chapters 21 and 22. The sanctification of God's people is produced and maintained by God himself through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The sanctification of God's people your holiness, my holiness, is produced and maintained by God himself through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So, you want to be holy? Then we need to know God through faith in Jesus Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you say, Pastor T, I didn't see Jesus mentioned in Leviticus 21 and 22. Where did you get that from? Okay, let's, let's skim it again. Let's skim it again. And this time, I want you to hear this, this chorus, the last part of this chorus, or the repeated part of this chorus, in those same verses that we read through, it goes something like this, I the Lord who sanctifies them. Or, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay, so we're going to see it in, in six or seven places. Chapter 21, verse 8. He, the priest, shall be holy to you. Why? For I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. Chapter 21, verse 15. But he, again the priest, shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. Why? For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Chapter 21, verse 22. At the end there. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. The priest with the blemishes, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Chapter 22, verse 9. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die, thereby when they profane it, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Chapter 22, the last three verses, 31 and 33. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. There's obedience, right? I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. The reason Israel was to sanctify God in all these ways because God was because God was the one who was sanctifying Israel. 
their sanctification was not primarily a matter of the obedience, although obedience was required. It was primarily, it was foundationally, it was at the base a matter of God's grace to them. Yes, obedience matters, but not to the point where sanctification depends on obedience more than on grace. Why am I emphasizing this? Well, A, it's in the text. But B, is because I think many Christians are in danger of overemphasizing their effort in sanctification and underemphasizing God's power in sanctification. We somehow think God can save us, but we doubt he can sanctify us. But sanctification is a part of salvation. Right? And all of salvation belongs to who? The Lord. So, so what I think we need, many of us as Christians, is greater trust in God's power to make us holy. What we need is greater trust, greater confidence in God's commitment to make us holy. What we need is a, a greater, deeper understanding that even if we profane God's name in some act of obedience, God is more committed to making his name holy in our lives than he is committed to punishing us for that disobedience. I'll need to let... Missed your place to shout. God is more committed in his grace to sanctifying his name in our lives, then he is committed to being angry and wrathful and punishing because of the disobedience and the profaning that we have done to our lives. How do we know that? We know that because Jesus died for all our sins. Every one of them, every act of profaning disobedience was nailed to the cross with the Son of God. Every way we have failed to exalt name, God's name, every way we have failed to beautify his name, every way we have failed to glorify his name, every sinful inclination of our heart, every weakness and corruption of the flesh, every sin that comes from that, nailed to the cross. It's God's way of saying, I will have that people who will glorify my name, among whom my name will be sanctified, and that people will be sanctified, notice, by what I do for them, not what they do for me. And it's striking how often the Christian, in their battle for holiness, is white-knuckling it in their own strength. And how often, as a consequence, we feel our weakness and corruption and grow discouraged. Or how often, as a consequence, we dull our conscience to our weakness and become self-righteous. Neither of those things is the, is the way to holiness with God. Grace is the kindness of God, the unmerited favor of God. Two sinners who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that same grace is what teaches us to be holy. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions while we live so sober and 
upright lives, self-controlled lives in this present evil age. It's grace that teaches us that, not the law. It's the kindness of God. Here's what, just do a little theological work right here, and we're going to almost be done. That when the Bible talks about our sanctification, it talks about it in at least three ways. It talks about our, our sanctification, our holiness, as a position. We are set apart. We are positionally holy, positionally sanctified. It talks about it, number two, as a progress. We are holy, but we are also progressing in practical holiness. Right? It talks about it, finally, as a perfection. That in the end, when we see Jesus, we are going to see him and be transformed to be like him. Now, the, the common word that the Bible uses for that is we're going to be glorified together with him. But that glorified together with God is basically the completion of that sanctification, the perfection of it. So we got a, a position, we got progress, we got perfection. And, and what I want to do is just a little bit of work on those first two, the position of sanctification, the progress of sanctification, as it relates to the gospel and grace. Because both of those things, the position and the progress, are rooted in the sacrifice of Christ and the grace of God through Jesus. So that position, God works it out for us. We'll give you a fancy word. It is monergistic. Mono meaning one, gistic from the word meaning energy or working. There is one worker in our positional sanctification, and that one worker is not you and me. God. I'll give you two verses in Hebrews. You know at some point we had to quote Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and verse 14. Listen to the connection between Jesus and sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and by that will, meaning God's will in the new covenant, and by that will we have been sanctified. Past tense, perfect, right? We have been sanctified. It's accomplished through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When he dies on the cross, he dies not just for our justification, not just for our forgiveness, not just for our reconciliation. When he offers his body on the cross, he offers it also for our sanctification. We are positionally sanctified through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Same, same context now, verse 14. Notice what the writer says. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, now in that verse, he's got all three stages in view. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by that one offering. All of our sanctification is rooted, beloved, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Which means, in your battle for holiness, the most fundamental thing we have to preach to ourselves is, I am already holy in Christ. It's not an achievement of human effort. It's an achievement of the cross, of the Son of God. I am already sanctified. Now I get to live that way. That's how that works. It's not let me live holy so I can become holy. 
Positionally, God has already done that work for you in Jesus Christ, which is why if you are in Christ, you can never be lost to God. You're his forever because you're sanctified positionally forever, being united to Christ through faith. So that's, that's the positional piece. Let's talk about the sort of progress here. Now, positionally, it's monergistic. Fancy word. Progressively, it's synergistic. S-Y-N, which means together. Logistic, same word for working or energy. Now we are working together to grow in a practical holiness, to conform our actual live lives to Christ. When it comes to justification, our obedience does not matter at all. Christ's obedience is all that matters. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. When it comes though to our sanctification, we work together with God to become what God has appointed us to become. The very image and likeness of himself through his son. There are two people working there. You'll see this in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes there to that church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, there's obedience, right? Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Say, hey, make sure you're a Christian. Right? Then he says this, while you're working out for your, your own salvation in fear and trembling, verse 13, guess what else is happening? Guess what else is working? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I find so much encouragement from verse 13. <laughs> verse 13 means every time you have a desire, an unction, an inclination, a thought to do something holy, to grow in holiness, guess who's at work in you? It's God who is at work in you. The text says both to will, to even want it, right? It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's not even like God gets you started, then you got to take over. God said, no, let me, let me crank this fire right here. Let me turn the car over and I'm going to drive it. And I'm going to do the work in you. While you're working out your own salvation in fear and trembling, I'm working it in. Everything God wants to work out of us, he also works in us when it comes to our sanctification. All of God's work in us and all of God's work for us is built on God's grace to us. What God wills for us, God works in us. And so, beloved, our sanctification, our being a royal priesthood, holy unto the Lord. And just as a reminder, you know, 1 Peter 2 calls not just the pastors, but all Christians. We have become this royal priesthood, right? So Leviticus 21, 22 is applied to all of us as New Covenant, New Testament priests, otherwise called Christians. When it comes to our sanctification, God is not an opponent or a bystander. God is at work in us and for us and with us to produce the holiness that he demands. 
We are never alone in this fight. And I just want to speak just real briefly to the person who's feeling dismay in the face of their sin. One of the lies that's easy to believe is that God won't take this sin from you or give you victory in it. That's just your life. That's a lie of your flesh and a lie of the enemy. God's too strong. God's too strong, beloved. Pornography, God's too strong. Sexual morality, God's too strong. Alcohol, God's too strong. Drugs, God's too strong. Now, you, you may wonder why he trusts you with it instead of delivering you instantly. That's in God's own counsel, in God's own mind. I can only tell you this. He is ultimately going to get glory from you and through you, having trusted you to fight this thing for some time. But God is too strong. God is too strong. And if you are Christ, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Conforming you to the image and the likeness of Christ. It is for you in a very, and me in a very staggering sense to do one thing. Rest. Rest in faith. That God is at work. And simply do the next right thing. Next time you're tempted to click, don't. Next time you're tempted to text, don't. The next time you're tempted to lie, don't. The next time you feel that impulse not to click, not to text, not to lie, remember where it came from. It's God at work in you to will that. And then remember what he promises. He's at work in you to do it. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe God's too strong, beloved. And take heart in your failures, because we will sometimes have failures. Take heart in this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. <laughs> Write it down. Make it plain. Hold fast to it. My friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we want to invite you to a certain kind of warfare. And you say war never sounds appealing. It's not. It's war. But it's the war for your soul. Interestingly, it's a war that's already been won. In that one act on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus dies for our sins, he defeats Satan, he defeats sin, he defeats death itself. He turns away God's anger at us because of our sin by dying in our place. And three days later, to prove the victory, he was raised from the grave. And Jesus now lives forever, never to die again, never to suffer again, and, and so much alive that everyone who puts their faith in him are alive together too with him. Oh, I don't mean just this life we're now living with heartbeats and touches and everyday chores. I mean a new, abundant, eternal, never-ending life. That life which truly is life. In his victory, Jesus offers that victory to us. So if you're here this morning, know that we're calling you to warfare, to die to yourself, to die to your sins, to turn away from your old way of life, 
and to turn to a new way of life through faith in Jesus Christ. Know that we are doing that, but know that it's worth it. It's worth it. It ends in an eternal kingdom with God, completely holy like God. It begins with God coming to you now in his spirit, giving you a new heart, raising you from death to life, and promising never to leave you nor forsake you. This is what we call the gospel. God demands everybody everywhere to believe this message and to, and to demonstrate that belief by repenting from sin, that means turning away from it, and putting their trust in Jesus as their Savior and God and following him in a life of obedience depending on God's grace. Beloved, that's the only way to live. It's the only way to life is to trust Jesus and follow him. This morning we pray that you would put your hope in this same Savior that we hope in who has proven himself to be true over and over again. And if you have questions about it, want to talk more about it, want to study the scriptures together, let us know. We would like nothing more than to do that. But know God's too strong. It's too strong even for you to rebel against forever. Put your faith in him. Join with him in faith and live forever. And ARC, let us go on in sanctification, in that holiness which God promises and God provides. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in your sacrifice for our sins on our behalf. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in providing for our sanctification and guaranteeing our glorification. We pray that you would help us, having begun in grace, not to fall away from grace, not to commit the Galatian error, but to continue in grace through faith. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would keep us just as you promised and that you would make your name great among us. Lord, keep us from profaning your name. Hallowed be your name among us. So as you sanctify us, give us grace to sanctify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.